0: Why hello there, welcome back to a new episode of the Liberators Network podcast. My name is Christian Verwijs and today's episode is all about how Scrum motivates teams through goals and autonomy. We'll take a look at scientific research to help us understand what about the Scrum framework is so motivating to individuals and teams when done right. And it'll also help us understand how we can improve how we work with our Scrum team and Scrum teams. Now, the lessons in this episode apply pretty much to all Agile methodologies, but I'll focus on Scrum for this particular episode. Now, before diving into the actual episode, I want to mention that this episode, along with all the other ones in our podcast, is made possible by our patrons. These are people who are supporting the show with a monthly donation of a size they pick. And this is making it possible for us to record episodes, to write blog posts, to host meetups and to develop the Scrum Team Survey and also the many do-it-yourself workshops that we offer for free in our webshop. Now, if you think that the content that we create is useful to you or the Agile community, please consider donating as well. And you can go to patreon.com liberators to learn out how to do this. In return for your support, we will give you a whole bunch of nice benefits, like discount in our webshop, free do-it-yourself workshops that you can download. Sometimes you have to pay a few bucks, but if you're a patron, you can download all of these, all 60 of these for free. You also get a discount to the Scrum Team survey. You get access to our Discord community to give and get help. There are many benefits in store for you. So go take a look at patreon.com liberators. So let's dive into today's episode, which is called How Scrum Motivates Teams Through Goals and Autonomy. When people first look at the Scrum Framework, the first thing they often see are the roles, the events, and the artifacts. This is the structural part of the Scrum Framework. It basically tells you who is wearing which hat and when. And it makes sense that this is the first thing that people see. We are still so embedded in the leftovers of the mechanical perspective on management that originated during the industrial revolution that it's hard to see things from another perspective. But Scrum and the Agile methodologies are built on so much more. Scrum itself is a great example of a motivational framework. Its tactics and practices are deeply rooted in insights from academic research into what motivates people and what drives teams to become high performing. And while those roots are strong, they are also mostly invisible. The Scrum Guide does not explicitly mention them. And I'm quite sure that even the creators of the Scrum framework were not explicitly aware of these roots. But they are still present in the Scrum framework. And we'll use this episode to explore how this is the case. We will work our way in this episode through theories on motivation in teams. And we will try to understand how they apply to Scrum. And then we will use these insights to offer all sorts of practical tips that make it easier for your team to motivate itself and to use better goals. What motivates individuals? Before we dive into what motivates teams, it is important to first understand what motivates individuals. Scientists have long studied motivation in the workplace, mostly because of its effect on performance. Until the start of the 20th century, Much of that work focused on external motivators, like bonuses to reward good behavior, but also the punishment of undesirable behavior. This fitted well with the scientific management paradigm that was dominant in those years by that was advocated by Taylor. Now, this approach to management emphasizes rigorous measurement of how individuals workers perform and advocates the use of external rewards or punishment to improve that performance. A good summary of scientific management can be found in uh, Images of Organization, a book by Gareth Morgan from 2006, or at least that's the, the year that the edition that I have was published in. As the second century progressed, the focus shifted more to the psychology of workers and how their thoughts and feelings affected their work. This is when organizational psychology emerged as an academic field which is nicely summarized in Kanfer, Frese, and Johnson in 2017. Now the earliest members of organizational psychology like Hertzberg started to investigate how the psychological processes of workers influence their motivation. The most profound contribution to this was pioneered by Hackman and Altman in 1967 with their Job Characteristics Model or GCM. In essence, this model states that five job characteristics are essential to individual motivation. And I will now summarize those for you. The first one is task identity or the degree to which a job delivers a visible outcome that can be identified by the person performing it and those they work with. The second is called task significance. And this is the impact of someone's job on the, life of, uh, the lives or work of other people or the people that they work with. The third one is skill variety, which is the diversity of skills and activities that are involved in a job. The fourth job characteristic is autonomy, and this represents the autonomy that workers have to schedule and perform the work as they see fit, including the process by which they execute it. And finally, the final job characteristic is feedback, and this represents the frequency, amount, and clarity of the information about how effective a person is at their job. Together, these five characteristics provide employees with an experience of meaningfulness, an experience of responsibility for the outcomes, and knowledge of the actual results of their work. In turn this is what drives motivation but it increases also job satisfaction, performance and decreases absenteeism or basically people that leave work because they feel ill or because they don't like their job. Hackman and Oldman also recognized that personal differences influence this effect, particularly the need for growth that people have. They reasoned from earlier studies that the effect of highly motivating jobs on performance would be higher for people with a stronger need for growth and a simple formula can be used to calculate the motivating potential score for a job or or MPS as it's summarized. Now we actually created a free tool that you can use called uh, team metrics where you can actually calculate the motivating potential score for your team. The link for this is in the show notes. Now the job characteristics model has been around for a long time and has thus been studied extensively. And the bulk of the empirical evidence supports its core effects. In a meta-analysis of 260 studies and over 200,000 participants, Humphrey, Nargang, and Morgeson in 2007 found that motivational characteristics of jobs alone explain between 25 and 35% of the actual performance and job satisfaction. And these are very large percentages in uh, organizational and psychological research. What motivates teams? Once the link between individual motivation and work outcomes was established, psychologists started to investigate the role of motivation in teams and work groups. Much of that work focused on how team level factors influence the motivation of team members. And these are factors like goals, climate, cohesion, group identity and size. A paper by Confer, Freze and Johnson in 2017 gives a nice background on this and also what led up to this. We also explored cohesion in particular uh, in another episode of this podcast and we wrote a blog post about it to which I will share the link. So we won't cover cohesion as a factor in this episode. However, the presence of goals is really important and it has been one of the most extensively studied team level factors. And that makes sense conceptually, because work motivation always exists in relation to some goal. Although several theories about how goals and motivation are related were developed, the most prominent one to this day is called Goal-Setting Theory by Locke and Latham. There is a paper from 1990 by these authors that describes it really well, as long as the status quo of their research. Now, this theory also informed the well-known management approach called Management by Objectives, or MBO, that was developed by the management consultant Peter Drucker. Goal-setting theory was developed by Edwin Locke and Gary Latham based on data from earlier decades. The core premise of their theory is that clear and challenging goals motivate teams and individuals more than unclear goals or no goals at all. Specifically, they see that Uh, Goals serve three different functions. The first one is called the directive function and this requires that goals are clear enough and not too small. In that case, this allows teams to spend energy and efforts on activities to help them achieve that goal and avoid spending it on irrelevant activities. So the directive function gives focus and direction, as as the name also suggests. The second function of goals is an energizing function and this requires that goals are ambitious enough, but not too ambitious, uh, so that they allow the creation of energy and inspire greater effort in teams. The third function is the persistence function, and this requires that goals are difficult enough, but not too difficult, so that they keep inspiring people to prolong their efforts and keep trying. These three functions have been extensively supported through experiments and other studies, and Locke and Latham summarise much of this in a paper from 2002. It is also clear that not all goals are equally capable of inspiring greater performance. Numerous studies have shown that the motivating potential of goals is at its peak when they are difficult, when they are important and when they are set together, when they are specific enough and when there is frequent feedback on progression. You can find more about this in a paper by Confer, Frese and Johnson from 2017. They list specific studies that investigated these areas. Now, this body of scientific work informed the concept of SMART goals by George Doran in 1981, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Now, another powerful contribution of goal setting theory is that it recognizes individual differences. As the work that is required to achieve a goal becomes more complex, people need to have the skills and the self-confidence to remain motivated. When the work becomes more complex, or very complex, and people lack the skills or the self-confidence, their motivation will actually suffer. Which was nicely shown in a study by Confer and Ackermann from 1989, or 1998, sorry. In those situations, it is better to set non-specific learning goals, for example, try your best, than to set specific performance goals, which was recommended by Winthers and Latham in 1969. Now, goal-setting theory is one of the most robust theories in organizational psychology. Locke and Latham in 2002 report that, begin quote, Specific, difficult goals has, have been shown to increase performance on well over 100 different tasks involving more than 40,000 participants in at least 8 countries, working in a laboratory, simulation, and field settings, end quote. Few models in psychology have received such extensive empirical support. There is really no doubt that clear, specific, and ambitious goals are motivating and thus increase performance. But who sets the goals? As goal setting theory already suggests, the motivating potential of goals is at its peak when teams and employees are involved in their setting. So autonomy seems to be important. Organizational psychologists often refer to this as self-determination, or the belief that your behavior, decisions and task choice are self-determined. This is nicely captured in self-determination theory by Desi and Ryan from 2012. At its core, this theory states that intrinsic motivation is at its peak when three personal needs are fulfilled. The first need is that people need to feel sufficiently competent to achieve a goal. The second is that people need to feel sufficient autonomy so that they can decide how to achieve that goal. And finally, a person needs to feel connected and related to others who are also working towards that goal. Like goal setting theory, self-determination theory has been extensively supported by experiments, field studies and other investigations. You can find a good overview of this in the paper by Desi and Ryan from 2000. But a theory is only as useful as what it can predict in the real world. Fortunately, many studies have found strong effects of self-determination and autonomy on desirable work outcomes, like job productivity, performance, but also lower absenteeism. You can find an overview of these studies in Gagney and Dassey from 2005. But I'll give you some examples also. For example, people who experience autonomy in their work are more committed to their work and the organization, they more quickly volunteer to help others, they are more satisfied with their work, feel better about themselves and perform better than people who feel controlled or who at least don't feel like they have a sense of self-determination. Daniel Pink popularized aspects of self-determination theory in his popular book Drive that was published in 2011. Now, does all this mean that goals are only motivating when they are set by teams themselves? Self-determination theory does not require this. Even goals set by others can be internalized too, but only when the psychological needs of autonomy, competency and relatedness are sufficiently fulfilled. But the more control teams have over their own goals, the stronger the effect on motivation will be. How does all of this tie together in the Scrum framework? The insights from the research that I addressed up to this point help us recognize how the Scrum Framework is a motivational framework. Not through its use of roles or events, but through its strong emphasis on short-term goals like sprint goals and its longer-term purpose, the product goals, but also team autonomy. Goal-setting theory goes to great lengths to show that not all goals are equally adept at inspiring motivation. The most motivating goals are challenging, clear and provide frequent feedback on their progression. This is precisely what a good sprint goal should offer, a tangible goal for just the current sprint that is clear enough to determine what a team will work on and also give direction on what a team will not work on. Self-determination theory adds to this that goals should be proportional to the competence of a team. Goals that are way too ambitious will fail to motivate and can even demotivate. Goals that should also be set in a way that makes a team feel they have autonomy, or self-determination, in how to achieve that goal. This is why goals that are too detailed are not helpful. Or why a goal like complete all the work on the sprint backlog won't inspire any motivation. It also explains why having dozens of goals is not going to help your sprint and your team either. Taken together, these insights help us understand why scrum so often fails to take off. When your scrum team doesn't use sprint goals, you should not be surprised that motivation and performance will remain low. When your scrum team has no say in whatever sprint goal is forced upon them or how to achieve that goal, it shouldn't be surprising that motivation remains low. When your sprint goals are too challenging for your team or too vague, it shouldn't be surprising that motivation remains low or even drops further. These are not opinions, but they are empirical facts that are grounded in an overwhelming amount of scientific research. The message is really quite simple. If you want motivated teams, they need clear and challenging goals that match their level of competence and should be set by by or with them. How to create better sprint goals and product goals? Let's shift gears a bit and take a look at some practical applications of the insights that we've covered up to this point. Barry and I often talk with scrum masters and scrum teams about the need for good sprint goals. From these conversations we know that many teams struggle here. It is often hard for them to pick a single goal or to formulate a goal that can be achieved in one sprint. Other teams can't control the work on their product backlog or even their sprint backlog and they end up with a hodgepodge of items in a sprint that cannot be covered with a single sprint goal. What can these teams do to make their work more motivating and get more use out of self-determination theory and goal setting theory? Now, unfortunately, goal setting theory and self-determination theory don't provide a precise recipe on how to create good motivating goals, and certainly not for scrum teams specifically. Even so, there are a couple of helpful and consistent ideas that you can use with, the, with, with your team that are also consistent with, the, uh, with what we covered in this episode. Unfortunately, goal setting theory and self-determination theory don't provide precise recipes on how to create better goals and certainly not for scrum teams specifically. Even so, we found that there are a couple of things you can do that are helpful and consistent with the theories that we addressed. The first tip is to formulate your goals together. Don't create sprint goals for the team, but write them together. This is a good way to honor the self-determination of teams and its members. This is also why the scrum guide emphasizes that sprint goals should be created by the entire team and not just the product owner. Even though the product owner can certainly introduce an important business objective and set a purpose, the team as a whole then refines that into a sprint goal that they feel is challenging enough and also within their capabilities. As a rule, we always finalize a sprint goal with our teams by asking, open and honestly, begin, quote, Even though it might seem challenging, does everyone feel confident enough that we can achieve this goal, this sprint, end quote. The second tip is to ask powerful questions. Sprint goals, or any goal for that matter, will fail to inspire motivation when they are too vague or too specific you really have to find a sweet spot together and that requires a lot of creativity and ingenuity. We found that it's really useful to use powerful questions here to trigger people's thinking. For example, you can ask something like, what would need to happen while working on this sprint that would be cause for celebration? The answers to this question can often lead to very useful sprint goals. Another question you can ask is, what worry about our product is keeping you up at night? What can we build or test this sprint to make you sleep a bit better? And also the answers here might give you a good indication of what sprint goals could be for this team. Now there are some other powerful questions that are helpful and we offer eight other ones in uh, another blog post for which the link will be included in the show notes. Go take a look if you're looking for more inspiration. The third tip is to learn from other teams that have motivating goals. Now I know that when I say that sprint goals should be clear and challenging enough in this episode you may still wonder what they should look like then. Good examples of sprint goals that motivated teams are often a great way to start getting it. So take a look at how other teams in your organization work with sprint goals and look together for examples of goals that are highly motivating. Now we also compiled a list of actual sprint goals from one of the teams we worked with in a specific blog post to which I will also include the link in the show notes. That post uh, is usually quite helpful if you want to get a sense of how to create more motivating sprint goals. None of those goals are perfect, but I think they are useful examples to read. The fourth tip is to diagnose how motivating your sprint goals are. You can use your upcoming sprint retrospective to diagnose with your team how motivating sprint goals are for your team. You can bring examples of recent sprint goals and ask your team to rank the goals on the three functions we discussed in in this episode. To what extent do they give you energy, to what extent do they give you direction and to what extent do they make you persist in the face of challenges. Then you can discuss the rankings and identify patterns. A liberating structure like one-two-for-all is really helpful there, but you can also use impromptu networking. And our final tip is to try our Do-It-Yourself workshops to create better sprint and product goals. Because we know how hard it is for many teams to get started with this or to know when they're doing it right, Barry and I created a whole bunch of Do-It-Yourself workshops that you can run with your team or in your organization to create better goals. We have four of them and the links of those are also in the show notes. Each workshop takes between one and two hours and comes with a detailed facilitation guide that is based on liberating structures. So they're easy to facilitate. You can do them in person or online. Now, some of these workshops are free, others cost a few bucks to cover the effort that we put into creating them. But you can just start with the free ones and see if you like them. Or you can become a patron and get all of them for free, by the way. Let's move to some closing words. Is the Scrum Framework the accumulation of its roles, events, and artifacts, or is it something more? In this episode, we explored how the Scrum Framework is essentially also a motivational framework. Although this is never made explicit by its creators, the design of the Scrum Framework is deeply consistent with the insights from decades of work by organizational psychologists on what is necessary to create motivated teams and individuals. The motivational power of the Scrum framework lies in how it uses goals to create motivated teams. The scientific studies and models we discussed in this episode show that clear and challenging enough goals are motivating, but only when teams have a say in them or determine them altogether. In turn, motivated teams perform better, are more satisfied with their work, volunteer more help to others, and are more loyal to their colleagues and the organization they work in. Finally, we also shared five practical tips for how to create more motivating goals. Now, if you use Scrum, but don't use Sprint goals for whatever reason, I hope this episode made you realize that you're missing out on a key ingredient of of what makes Scrum work. It may also help you understand why performance in your team is lackluster, why motivation is low, and why members are not willing to take initiative. If these are the things that you're seeing, you may want to invest in the creation of shared goals. Now, regardless of how difficult it may be to actually do this and to create properly motivating goals, it is really essential that you do. This should be the focus of everything you work on as a scrum master in this particular team. We wish you all the best in that journey, knowing just how hard it is, but also how rewarding it is when it starts to work. And that brings me to the end of today's episode. I hope you learned something new about motivation and how Scrum is essentially a motivational framework. This episode can also give you a lot of insights as to why things are not working out in your team and hopefully help you do better with the practical tips that we also offered. Now, if you liked today's episode, please like it on the platform that you're listening on or even better, leave us with a review. This is always a nice way for other people to discover our podcast and listen to it too. You can also share it on LinkedIn or other platforms or just with your colleagues or other teams in your organization to see if it's beneficial to them. And also, keep in mind that this episode along with all the other ones in our podcast are made possible by our patrons. You can support the show at patreon.com liberators and we'll give you a whole nice list of benefits in return for this. But having said all this, I want to thank you very much for taking time out of a busy day to learn something new. And I hope to see you again for the next episode. Take care.